Well, you can be seated, and we're going to come to that truth of God this morning. I'll have you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning, to Philippians chapter 1. While you're turning, I will again welcome everyone and say that I am glad that you're here this morning. I hope you are glad to be here this morning, yourselves. I hope when you leave, you say that it has been good to be in the house of the Lord. What would make you say that? On reflection of the service that's gone on, what is it that would make you rejoice uh, and, and feel joyful as you leave? What makes you rejoice about the Sunday service as we gather from week to week? You know, is it that you've been together with friends again, with family, be able to to sit together and to catch up? I know uh, weeks are busy and often we don't get to visit with friends and family as much as we, we might like, but is that what makes a service a good service? Perhaps it is that the songs that were sung were some of your favorite songs, good uplifting songs. Perhaps it is that you had a a strong emotional response to the message, what we used to call in the church in which I grew up, Holy Ghost Goosebumps. Perhaps you received some of that. Maybe that makes a service good. Did the preacher lift or preach an uplifting message? Or maybe he preached a, a good, strong fire and brimstone message. Perhaps a good service, a good sermon is when there's not too much application or not too little, or maybe none of that really matters as long as it just doesn't go on too long. As you invite others to our congregation, what what are the things that you point out as the the primary things that 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 you want to mention to them? What are the priorities that you give? What is important in a worship service? Or, or more to the point, perhaps, what is important in preaching? Because as you know, as, as churches of the Reformation, Protestant churches, our services are focused on the preaching. This preaching, though it is not by any means the only part of the service, it is not by any means the only important part of the service. Every aspect of the service is important. But the preaching of the Word takes a special place, holds a special place. What's important in preaching? Well, answers to that question are many and varied today. And to be blunt, many of the answers that many give today are misplaced. Some say the main thing about a sermon, the main thing about a worship service is that we we be careful that we don't exclude anyone that we not offend anyone, that no one feel bad, or that maybe that we give practical assistance in, in moral lives, that we teach people how to be better citizens, better uh, family members, better husbands and wives and children. It's imperative that, that that question be consciously asked within the life of a congregation. Within the life of our church, it's important that we ask that question, and even more important, that it be clearly answered. 
And in looking at our text this morning, we are going to find the, the only answer that really suffices, the one correct answer. And to see it, we're going to look at the opening verses of Philippians. If you are there, Philippians chapter 1, follow along with me and let me ask you to stand together as we read God's word. We're going to read the first 18 verses this morning. Paul's letter to the Philippian church begins like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way... Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching, and we pray, Father, that you would be with the one who preaches now and with us who hear. Lord, we pray that you would um, instruct us from your word this morning, and may we rejoice as you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In speaking of priority in worship and priority, particular in preaching, I want to encourage you this morning and instruct you on this topic, the priority of preaching Christ. That the preaching of Christ is the priority that the Apostle Paul had and therefore must be the priority for us in the church today. And we're going to look at three things, a nice three-point sermon for us this morning. We'll see first that it was his focus, that is Paul's focus, in his imprisonment. Secondly, that it was his priority in evaluating the preaching of others. And that thirdly, by application, it is therefore to be our priority in the church. First, we want to see that it was Paul's focus in his imprisonment. 
You remember, for those of you who who were with us recently as we wrapped up the book of Romans, you'll remember that Paul had long sought to visit Rome. Uh, Romans 1.13, he talks about that at the other end of the book. In Romans 15.23, he talks about that. And now as we sort of join Paul this morning, he is there. He has made it to Rome, but not under the circumstances that he thought. Uh, He is there as a prisoner. He is imprisoned in, in the capital there. He is under ba- what is basically house arrest. But Paul continues to work even while he is in prison. And you may know that while Paul was in prison, he wrote several letters to uh, churches and one to an, in, an individual. He wrote to the Ephesian church, the letter that we have that we call Ephesians. He wrote to the church in Colossae, the Colossian church. He wrote to Philemon. And then lastly, he wrote to the church at Philippi, the Philippian church. Now as he writes, and as he writes to the the Philippians, there's a special, if you read the book of Philippians, which you can do in in a single setting, so, or sitting, so I would encourage you to read this wonderful book. But Paul sort of exudes warmth with this church. This is a very friendly letter, a loving letter as he has a special place in his heart. It's clear for the saints here in Philippi. And as he writes to them, he writes to them much as we write when we write letters, if we, anyone writes letters anymore. Uh, but he writes to tell them what's been going on with him, uh, the things that, um, that he's been experiencing, though he doesn't really explain so much to them about the what of his situation, not a blow-by-blow description of what's been going on with him, but rather he focuses on the results, the results of what's been going on with him. And he mentions two things that have resulted or are resulting from his imprisonment. And both of them are positive. You might think that he, being in prison, as he wrote, would not be positive. I know Many of us would not be too positive if we were writing a letter from from prison. But Paul is. Look at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what has happened to Paul that that he is uh, happy with, that it has advanced the gospel? Well, remember again how Paul got to Rome. He was arrested in Jerusalem He was falsely charged. There was a scheme on his life that he was only barely able to escape. And he was sent in chains along a long journey, a dangerous journey at some points, in chains to Rome where he is now, as I say, in prison. That's what's happened to him. And he says, well, that's a good thing. He says, I want you to know that 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 has served to advance the gospel. What particularly does he mean? Well, in verses 13 through 14, he explains it. The first thing that makes this a positive uh, development in his life is what he says in verse 13. He says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's saying that it is through my imprisonment, throughout Throughout the time of my incarceration here, he says the gospel has been spread. He says it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Those 
elite troops that were guarding Paul. Paul was, as I mentioned, under house arrest. He was free to have people come and visit him. Uh, He had a certain amount of freedom. Of course, he couldn't leave. But he had uh, these guards that would guard him, and they would guard him in four-hour shifts. And so there was always someone with him. And to be sort of in that situation, we we might think, who is really the captive audience here? Paul had a new captive audience every four hours to be able to speak to, and it is not at all a stretch, knowing what we know about Paul, that as he spoke to those guards, that he would speak to them of Christ. He says, in fact, that, that it's become known to them that, the, that my imprisonment, he says, is for Christ. I'm not here just as a chance happening. I'm not here because I've done anything wrong. He's, it's known to them that he is there because of Christ, because of his service of Christ, because of his preaching of the gospel. And it's known to the imperial guard, to those guards, and he says to all the rest. That's probably a reference to, to Caesar's household there in Rome. To all of the ones that come in contact with Paul, everyone who came into contact with him was clear why Paul was there. Not simply in chains, but it results in their acquaintance with the gospel, with the good news of Christ. Verse 13, he tells us that what they know is that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's the first thing that we see, is that Christ is proclaimed to his captives, or to his captors. The second thing is in verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. His incarceration, his imprisonment, is really a a motivation for the others in the church there to go out and to preach, to go out and to share Christ. What Paul is saying here is that those of the church, those of the various churches, as we saw when we went through the book of, of Romans, the ch- house churches there in Rome, because of Paul's imprisonment, have taken the opportunity, seeing that Paul is in prison there, they've taken the opportunity to, to step into the gap. You know, Paul can't do what Paul was doing. And what did Paul do typically? He would visit churches. He would plant churches. He would go on these these journeys. We saw that he traveled 10,000 miles in his ministry, planting churches, visiting churches, but now he's stuck. Now he's in prison. And what Paul is saying here is that one of the things that has made this a good thing is that the brothers in the church have become confident by my imprisonment that they are much more bold now to speak. They're stepping up. They're filling in that gap stepping into that gap and preaching Christ with great confidence, he says, and with great fear. Fear of the Lord, not fear of man. So here is what makes it good, Paul says. That what made his imprisonment for him a good thing was that through it, because of it, Christ was being proclaimed. It was being proclaimed by Paul. It was being proclaimed by others, to his captors, to the brethren, and to those outside of the church. What a way to evaluate your situation. What a standard by which to think, is this a good thing or a bad thing, whether Christ is being proclaimed. That's what Paul's doing. Paul rejoices that his imprisonment has resulted in those things. If you drop down to verse 18 and right to the very end of it, he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
That's the primary thing. Now we want to look at the second thing, which is that it was Paul's priority in evaluating the preaching of others. Because as Paul explains this, as he, as he says that it's being, known, being made known, Christ is being made known to those of Caesar's household, and particularly here that it's becoming, um, being preached by those in the church as they become bold, as they speak the word, verse 14 says. Paul says, however, not everything is completely as it might seem. And he says of those people who are speaking the word, those who are preaching the word with courage and with fearlessness, he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Let me make a side note here. If you are following along with me in the King James Version or a new King James Version, you will see that it has verses 16 and 17 swapped. Um, the same content is there, but those two verses are, are swapped. It just has to do with the, the Greek manuscripts behind the English translations. But just so you don't think, why is he reading those verses backwards? But he's saying that not all who are preaching Christ are preaching from the same motive. Some, he says, are preaching in love. Verse 15, 15, he says, from goodwill. Some are preaching as we might expect people to preach. Knowing, he says, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. These are those that we just mentioned, that that are stepping in because they know that Paul is detained from his usual work. He is called to to witness to the gospel now at the very highest level of of Roman society. He is in the household in the area of the emperor, of the Caesar. He says there are some that preach in love. That's great. But there are others. There are others who actually, we see here, hope to stir up trouble for Paul by their preaching. Look at verse 17. Well, let's let's look at verse 15, because he says there, indeed, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They are preaching, but they're hoping by it to cause trouble for Paul, to sort of rub salt in the wounds of Paul. Perhaps they are, because it talks about how they are doing this out of selfish ambition, they see the fact that Paul is now in prison as their opportunity to make a name for themselves in their preaching, to become uh, the new guy. They were perhaps jealous of Paul, envious of Paul, They do it out of rivalry. That's one of the works of the flesh from Galatians 5.20. Strife, uh, discord, contention. That's That's their motivation. Perhaps they sought to discredit Paul. You know, maybe he's in prison because he did something wrong. Maybe he's in prison because he taught something wrong. There's always a danger even without bad motives, there's always a danger to try to understand why something happened. We talked about that uh, last week or the week before. We'd like to try to do that. 
we like to say, what is God doing in this situation? Why, is we, why does he allow this to happen? And we can't. Remember we talked about what we are to do? We are to look to the scriptures. We are to look to see how we are to react to these things, how we are to learn in these things, how we are to grow in these things. That's our responsibility, not to try to look into the mind of God and say, what does God have in mind here as he does this? But these here are perhaps saying, God is teaching Paul a lesson by having him in prison. Out of selfish ambition they're preaching. Out of self-promotion they're preaching. Not sincerely. That's the main thing there in verse 17. Not with pure motive. Now who they were is is a good question, and there are two things that we can say about them that we might not think about. Two things that we know. The first is that they are Christians these who are preaching in this way. They are part of the brothers from verse 14. So these are Christians that are preaching. And secondly, we know that they are preaching correctly. They're preaching Christ. Verse 15, see he says right there, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So they're preaching Christ. In verse 17, he says the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So they're preaching, they're Christians and they're preaching Christ. Now, why, again, why they are doing this, we're not sure. There are some possibilities by looking at the way Paul describes them. Strife, selfish ambition, that gives us some idea. Now, we also might mention that if they're trying to stir up trouble for Paul, as he says here, we know that they are unsuccessful. They're not discouraging Paul. They're not causing Paul to be depressed as he's there in prison. If their goal is to upset or distract or oppose Paul, they're unsuccessful. Look at verse 18, and we see Paul's reaction to all of this. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's saying, What does it matter? What does it matter what their motivation is? The important thing whether they are preaching from selfish ambition, whether they are preaching from love and goodwill, it doesn't matter. Paul's perspective is is different, and Paul's perspective is important for us as we answer these questions this morning. There's one thing Paul says that is important, again, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And in that I rejoice. That's what's important to Paul. One group is preaching Christ from goodwill and from love, and they preach Christ. And Paul says, I rejoice in that. The other group preaches Christ from envy and rivalry, from selfish ambition, but they're preaching Christ. And so Paul says, I rejoice because of that. Now, motives are important. Motives are important to Paul. In other places, he speaks about the importance of motives. And we are to be sincere. Pastors, preachers are to be sincere. We, when we share, are to be sincere. But Paul is saying here that that is not the primary thing in preaching. That sounds odd. But I I remember a, a pastor once who said, I would rather have the wrong content and the right motives 
than the right content and the wrong motives. Paul disagrees. He says we need to have the right content. And even if the motives are not perfect, even if they are suspect, if the preaching is the preaching of Christ, that's fine. So it's sort of like the old associative and commutative properties of multiplication. You know, you can't switch those around here in preaching and have it work out the same way. How important is content to Paul? We can see that motives are not primary, but how important are, is the content? Well, let me remind you of how important the content is to the Apostle Paul. He opens up a letter, his letter to the Galatians, with these words. He says, I'm astonished, writing to the Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if we, the apostles, he's saying, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, for the apostle Paul, motives are negotiable. Content is not negotiable. And Paul rejoices here back in Philippians that Christ is preached. His priority as he evaluates the preaching of these other people, the other preachers, his priority is that Christ is what is being proclaimed. And Paul himself in his own preaching said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this priority of Christ being preached, him being the content, that was Paul's priority in evaluating his own imprisonment. That was his priority in evaluating the preaching of others here, even above the the idea of motives. And we can see then that it is therefore to be our priority in the church. It must be our priority in the church. It might seem unnecessary to express this, but there are many churches who don't have that priority. It's been replaced, superseded by many other considerations, many other topics. The latest psychological theories have replaced Christ in many churches. Couched, perhaps, in Christian verbiage, with some Christian uh, verses, some Bible verses thrown in. It's been replaced in many churches by self-help techniques. That is what is preached in many churches, perhaps justifying them by adding some scriptures to them. In fact, the largest church in the United States falls into that category. Sometimes the preaching of Christ is replaced by the opinions of the pastor, his favorite stories. I remember a long time ago going to a church where we would have left the service having learned more about the pastor than we learned about God. It's been replaced in some churches by moralism. Just preaching moral messages. The Old Testament preached as moral directives. 
You know, what is your Goliath? And what are the five stones with which you will overcome obstacles in your life? Instead of seeing an example of God rescuing his people through a man of his choosing. Catering to felt needs. We see that all the time. Seeking an experience. Hasn't that replaced the preaching of Christ in churches? Seeking a powerful or an emotional effect. Now, we want as a church to grow, don't we? We want to to bring people in. And we know that there are a lot of people who are are not only in churches or, or who have been in churches where these things are important, but there are many, many, many people out there for whom these things are important. These are the things that many people are looking for. And we, a small congregation, we could grow. If we want to grow, I guarantee you that we could grow this church by starting to mix in these things. We want to grow. We want to bring people in. But at what price? What price are we willing to pay? And I will tell you, we will not give up the priority of preaching Christ from this pulpit. What makes a church popular? Well, for some, it's the programs that the church has. Now, I'm not against programs. But when they become the priority, there's a problem. Some churches are popular just because they're popular. Some are are popular. Some churches grow because they're in the right place. They have the right kind of a building. Some grow because they have the right pastor. A celebrity pastor, one who's very slick uh, and, and speaks very well. Some are grow because they have the technology down, you know, the, the presentations and the bands and all of that. Professional worship. Some today become popular because they have bought into and offer uh, progressive stances on various things. But beloved, let us be very clear, let us be very simple here and saying that hearing Christ and his word preached must be the priority in the church. Not programs, not popularity, not proximity, not a pastor, but proclamation. Specifically, the proclamation of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is preached? There are a lot of churches where Christ's name is mentioned. But what does it mean that we are preaching Christ? It means and can only mean that we are preaching Christ as he is presented to us in the scriptures. Not that we make up our own idea of Christ. Not that we we find some other supposedly holy book and see its description of Christ and use that. We have to see how Christ is presented in the scriptures and preach that. Let me give you eight essential aspects of preaching Christ that must be the regular diet of a church. First, Christ must be proclaimed as fully God. As fully God. He is, Colossians 1 says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him. 
John 1.1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Romans 9.5 says that Christ is God above all, blessed forever. That's how Christ must be preached. Secondly, he must be preached not only as fully God, but what? As fully man. Who, Paul says in the next chapter of this very book, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, that's us, being born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He became man. He took a human nature to himself. That's essential if we are to preach Christ. And that that God-man, that he came, and number three, that he is preached as crucified, buried, and resurrected. See, we can't leave that out. Over in 1 Corinthians, at the very end of that book, Paul speaks of this gospel that he preaches in this way. Listen to what he says. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, regarding this gospel, he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. People don't want to hear that. Churches don't want to preach that. Paul says Jews demand a sign. There are churches today that demand a sign. We've got to have the sign. We've got to have the, the show. He says Greeks seek for wisdom. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But it is essential if we are to be preaching Christ. And not only was he crucified, not only was he buried, not only was he resurrected, but fourth, we have to preach him as dying for sin. He died for a reason. It was not just because his good works that he did caught up with him. It wasn't just because he wanted to to show how much God loves us, though he did that. It says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 15 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came to die as a sinner for sinners though he had no sin of his own. We must preach that. We must preach, fifthly, the covenantal prophetic aspect Paul mentions it here in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said that Jesus died and that Jesus was raised according to the scriptures. Jesus fulfilled the terms of the covenant. He paid for our breaking of that covenant so that we can receive the blessings of that covenant that he earned. He has to be preached as Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians again, he says, we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord. What does Lord mean? It means master, a sovereign. God is not just our buddy. He is our Lord. Let all Israel 
know that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. The seventh way that we must preach Christ, if we are to really preach Christ, is as the only way of salvation. The only way. You say, that's very exclusive. We say, yeah. Because Christ was very exclusive. God was very exclusive. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter said. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We must proclaim that if we are to proclaim Christ. And then the eighth is that we must preach Christ as the primary subject of this book. The primary subject of Scripture. That is what the Bible is about. It's not simply a moral code. It is a record of the preparation, the activity, and the explanation of Jesus Christ and what he did. As Jesus did to those two on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's what we are to do. That is how Christ was preached in the New Testament. That is how we must preach him in our churches. Proclamation of the gospel, the true gospel, that which was preached by Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and Jude, it won't be popular to all people, and we expect that, and we accept that, but that doesn't mean we change that. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so how can we preach anything other than Christ? Paul said the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But we say with Paul, we preach Christ and him crucified, and we have to. That is to be the church's message because that is the church's message. If we are not preaching that, if a church is not preaching that, it is not a church. Because the message of the church is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if we try to do those other things, we try to to entertain, we try to make people feel good, we try to give a good show, I'll tell you what, the world can do a better job of all of those things than we can. But we have one message that they do not have, but that they need to hear. And that's the priority that the church is to have. And why is that? Well, beloved, it is because it is Christ, Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, as we talked about this morning, as we proclaimed this morning, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the one who lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death to obtain eternal redemption for those who trust in him, the one who was raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It is Christ who is the only way to the Father. It is Christ who is our righteousness. This is the Christ who must be preached in our churches and this is the Christ who must be presented to a lost world by every Christian. That's what people need to hear. 
even if it's not particularly what they think they need to hear or what they want to hear. Don't be taken in by what passes for preaching in many churches. Paul said, I rejoiced that Christ is preached. Not that the pastor was cool. Not that the worship, service, the worship band was great. Not that the technology was spot on. But that Christ was preached. The church isn't a social club. It is a hospital for the soul. And one of the greatest temptations in today's consumer-centered, market-driven society is to compromise the preaching of the gospel in order to increase numbers. As you speak to people and invite them to church, and we should be inviting people to church so that they can hear about this Christ that we proclaim. But don't be apologetic for our church. Don't be apologetic that we don't have all the, the, the... bells and whistles. Don't be apologetic that we emphasize preaching Christ and preaching from this book and preaching this book. There's a difference of just preaching from this book. We can start here and read a verse and go off on a million different things. But we need to preach this book because it proclaims, guess who? Christ. And then when all of that is done, when you have heard that, people of God, be glad when you leave here each Sunday. Not because you've had your conscience appeased or your selfhood affirmed, but because you have heard Christ affirmed, that you have heard him proclaimed, because that is the priority in the church. And if you believe that, say amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it directs us to, that it proclaims, that it placards Christ, that it holds him up before our eyes, that we may see him and his glory and his beauty, that we may see our sinfulness and our need for a Savior and how it shows us Christ as that Savior and only him as that Savior. We thank you that you have given to us Christ and that you have given to us the word that points us to him. We pray, Father, that you would help us here to always be a church that preaches your word, that proclaims Jesus Christ, that rests in him, that rejoices in him. May that be our priority. And we pray that you would bless us through that. We know that you will. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, we are now going to be reminded, we're going to have Christ proclaimed to us now in a different way through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, Christ himself, to help us in our weakness, um, to direct us to rest on him, to believe in him, has given to us this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He himself instituted it. He himself gave it to us. He himself instructed us that we are to do it. And he did it on the night in which he was to be betrayed into the hands of men.
The Apostle Paul records it this way from 1 Corinthians 11. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The elements of the Lord's Supper, ordinary bread, ordinary wine, remain ordinary, but they are extraordinary in the use to which the Spirit puts them. When they are received and partaken in faith in Christ, they are to us, by God's design, a sign of the promises of the covenant of grace, a sign of the promises of the gospel, a sign of what Christ has done. And particularly, it is the bread as it is broken that is a reminder that Christ's body was broken for our sins. The wine poured out into cups signifies that the blood of Christ has been poured out for our sins. Not only is this sacrament that, but these things are seals to those promises. Assuring us that forgiveness and adoption and acceptance before God are in fact the present possession of all who have faith in Christ. They don't just signify these things, but they are God's authoritative assurance that the gospel is true. They are also a means of grace. In those who partake in faith, the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ and who indwells each and every believer, raises us to commune with Christ where he is in the heavenly places, causing us to spiritually feed on Christ as Jesus talked about in the Gospels, on his glorified body and blood that Jesus himself said is true bread and true drink. And he said that whoever does that has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what we're doing. That's what Christ has instituted for us. I need to mention that this part of the service is only for those who have faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people. The Bible says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He's not saying by that that we need to be perfect to partake of it, but we need to be united to Christ. We need to be trusting in Christ. We need to have faith in Christ. And so if you have repented of your sins, if you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, if you have professed that faith at some point in a church that preaches the gospel of God's free grace, and preaches Jesus Christ as he is presented in the scriptures. And if you have through the grace of God determined to live a life in humble obedience to God's word and to seek to walk in godliness before the Lord in all things. And if you are not in, under discipline in your church if you're visiting with us. If those things are all true of you, then come and partake. Rejoice with us in Christ. And rejoice in the God of your salvation. If those things are not true of you, then when the chariots come by, simply pass them along. Uh, we won't going to point anybody out. We don't want to embarrass anyone. But do come and talk to me after service about what it means to follow Christ.
And know that God is a gracious God. Know that he will accept you and forgive you if you come to him. And so, beloved, in order that we might be blessed by God in this celebration of the Lord's Supper, let's pray together. Almighty God, everlasting, eternal, infinite God, gracious God, we come to you, you who by the blood of your only begotten Son has secured for us that inheritance that's ready to be revealed in the last day. You, O God, who have redeemed for yourself a people out of every tribe and language and people and nation through the life and the death and the resurrection of your beloved Son, we pray that you would look upon us this morning. Look upon us in our weakness and give to us your strength. We thank you that you have granted us to draw close to you through this sacrament that we may enjoy fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ and be nourished by his crucified and glorified body and blood. We know, O Lord, that our ascended Savior does not dwell in temples made with hands, but is in heaven, where he continues to intercede on our behalf. And that we then may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread. We ask for your gracious blessing on this joyful celebration of your supper and we look forward Lord to that day when our Lord returns and we are all ushered into that eternal and glorious supper of the Lamb until then O Lord grant to us that we might love you more and love this world less we pray that your divine blessing would be upon us and upon this celebration we pray in the name of our Redeemer and Savior the Lord Jesus Christ who along with you and the Holy Spirit are the one true God blessed forever. Amen.